Well, good morning, family. I invite you please to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Just about the easiest place to find in your Bible. Open it up to page 1, probably. We're going to pick up today in verse 24. We started a series looking at Genesis 1 through 3. We've called it By Design. You know, common sense tells us that when we encounter something that has design to it, that we would look for a designer. We would look for a creator. That works in complex things, but it even works in fairly simple things. For example, just a little golf pencil. A golf pencil, a simple little cylindrical tubular thing with round core of graphite encased in a six-sided wooden casing. If you were out walking around in your yard or out through the woods, the forest, walking along and you look down and you see one of those laying on the ground, there's no way that you would look at that and go, oh my! Look what time and chance has produced in my yard. Look what the forest hath wrought. Purely accidentally. It doesn't happen. You look at that even in its simple simplicity of design, you would say there is a designer and maker of that little pencil. I was reading this week. I could use tons of examples, but this week I was reading and I... So I'd share this. Your body is composed, so they say, of some 30 to 40 trillion cells. That's, I understand, the most recent estimate of scientists, though I've, as I was looking it up, I've discovered estimates all the way up to a a hundred trillion cells in your body. Reality is nobody knows for sure because nobody's counted them all. So I decided this week I would try. I started. I gave up after a little while. They're, they're awfully small. Hard to remember where you left off. You know, not only do we have 30 to 40 trillion cells in our body, but each one of those cells is unbelievably complex. Again, they say that one of those cells probably contains some 200 trillion molecules. That's a lot. The biggest molecule in every cell in your body, you probably know, is DNA. The biggest molecule in in each cell. That little DNA molecule is, is in itself a wonder. It is, of course, you know, it contains all the information that makes you, you. Which they say would take some 200 books of a thousand pages to store that information. And it's, it's wound up there in your, in your cell. That little spiral of DNA is wound up there in, in the cell. Tightly wound up. But they say if you could take it out and, 
and straighten it out that it would be about six foot long. Again, they say if you could take every little DNA molecule out of those 30, 40 trillion cells of your body, that you could pack them all pretty easily into a little cube no bigger than an ice cube. But that if you took that little DNA molecule and you attached it end to end to all of those little DNA molecules in your body, that it would stretch from here to the sun and back some 200 times. Isn't that fantastic? So I wonder, is that a product of millions of very fortunate random chance events over billions of years that produced somehow the raw materials and produced a somehow hospitable environment that gave way for the raw materials to come together to produce a spark of life, which then developed and evolved and grew and changed and over time developed that little marvel of a DNA molecule inside a cell that produced you. Or is it more logical to see here the handiwork of a masterful engineer and designer and creator? That's just one of hundreds of thousands of examples we could look at for the incredible complexity and design in our bodies and in the world around us. It is the clear teaching of Scripture, of course, that there is a master designer, an eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who created everything. And the only logical response is to join with the psalmist who says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We honor Him. That is our aim as we pick up today here in Genesis 1 and we continue looking at the beginnings of everything. It's not just to see where we came from, but is that we might know better the God who made us. We're picking it up at verse 24. It's the sixth day of creation. Follow along as I read verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day six of creation God has already created the heavens and the earth. He has separated light from darkness. He has created the atmosphere, separating waters from water. He has created dry land. He has created vegetation. He has created the 
sun, the moon, the stars. He's created the sea creatures, the creatures in the air, and this day He creates the land animals. We've noted the pattern all through the days of creation. Each day God speaks and it was so. God speaks it into existence. We've also noticed that as God began creating life that there was always this little phrase that was repeated. You may have noticed in those two verses, I think it's six times where it says that He created these creatures to reproduce according to their kinds. After their kinds. God says life here does not evolve from one form into another. But He has designed it where one kind of life produces that same kind of life with all kinds of variation of that kind, but never moving from one kind to another. Observation tells us that is true. There has not been any observation in human history of one kind of life evolving and moving, changing to another. The evolutionists will say, well, there hasn't been enough time. And so we look to the fossil record. Well, the fossil record also tells us that this is true. There's been no find of anything in the fossil record, much to the embarrassment of evolution. After 150 years of looking, there has never been a bona fide example about anything that shows that this kind of life has become another. What we find is exactly what we would expect to find according to what God says. There's this kind of life and that kind of life and that kind of life. There's nothing that moves from this to that. The missing link is still missing and it will stay missing because you cannot find what does not exist because God says so. Then we notice thirdly here that when it's done, God saw that it was good. God has now here in this first act of creation on day six, He has finally finished setting the stage for what, as we were reminded of at the offering prayer, thank you, God is preparing for the height, the apex of His creation. He's about to create man. He has been creating man's environment, the universe and the world for man to live. Now on day 6, He continues in verse 26. And we see the creation of man. Follow along. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day 
So God creates man. We could notice many, many things, but I just want to notice, call our attention to three things about God's creation of man. First, God acts personally. If you noticed in every act of creation up till this point, it has happened like this. It says, and God says, let this do that. Let that do this. He says, let, let there be this. Let there be that. And here, the narrative changes. Now God speaks in the first person, let us. And God says, let us make man. It's in the first person and it's, it's active rather than passive. Let there be this. Let this produce that. God says, let us make. God is personally involved as, if, as it were. It's, it's an indication of His personal interest, His personal involvement of the importance and the value that He places on the creation of human life. This make it implies the potter at the wheel. Again, making art. Not only does God act personally, but God acts plurally. God says, let us make man in our image. Those are plural pronouns. Of course, you know that at the heart of Jewish faith, at the heart of the Teaching of the Old Testament is the great Shema. From uh, Deuteronomy, other, we find it in Scripture where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, only one God. And yet, the pronouns here are plural. So who is this us? The Jewish rabbis, as they struggled with this, they said, well, it's God speaking to the angels. And that sounds perhaps logical, except there's a problem because you get down to verse 27 and it becomes very clear in whose image. God said, let us make man in our image. And you get down to verse 27 and in whose image does God make man? God makes man in, it says, in His own image. After the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. It's in the image of God, not the image of God and angels. So it's not God talking to the angels. It's God talking to Himself. Let us make God in our image. You may recall when we were when we first started this study a couple of weeks ago in the very first verse when we it says in the beginning, God. And we discovered there the name God is Elohim, which is plural for the name El. El, which means God Almighty. What we have is that God had placed here in seed form, as so many of the truths here in Genesis are, in seed form, a truth which would only develop through the rest of Scripture, where we discover that indeed God is one. But God is one who is a God who is also Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. He is one God, singular, who is in three persons. 
Do I understand that? No, I don't. But the Bible teaches that it's clear. It's beyond our understanding, which should be expected of the infinite God. But we see here that the singular God is acting as triune God, all in unison, all in unity. He is working together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all involved in creation. How do I know that? We go back up to verse 2. Right after it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. And it says, it moves on, the earth, the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Spirit was there at creation. We don't see it here in this text, but we get to the New Testament, and what we discover is that God the Son was there at creation. We won't take the time to turn there, but just jot down Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, or John chapter 1, verse 2. You can see that God the Son was there creating. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, the Word. You go down later in the text, who's the Word? Jesus. Involved in creation here is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, triune God who is both singular and plural because it's three persons in one God. Not, It wasn't laid out all fully developed in this text, but the seed is there, we see now. But it takes on incredible significance to you and me when we begin to ponder what that means. Especially when it says, let us make man in our image. What we realize is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are having, as it were, a council and they say, let us make man. That becomes so significant when you realize, when you get to the rest of Scripture and God's plan for redemption unfolds and we discover that from the very beginning, as Peter says it this way, that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. When you get to Revelation, and there's at least two times in Revelation I can think of where it says it speaks of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. See, what we realize is that before any, any of us and any of this was created, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit said, let us make man in our image, full well knowing that what's going to happen is that man is going to fall into sin. The only way to rescue man is for the Son to become man and to die in our place. Why would God do that knowing that's what was going to happen? I don't know that one. The only thing I have to go on is when the Scripture says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. It was out of love. Despite knowing the cost, God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit sign on to the plan. Let us do it. Let's do it. What what marvelous grace, what marvelous love. As God acts personally, And as God acts in concert as the Trinity to create man. The third thing I want to notice here in this account of man's creation is that we are made in God's image. 
in our image, after our likeness, as God speaks, you and I are forever distinct from animals. We are unique from animals. We are set apart. Despite what you will often hear as you watch PBS or you listen to different media out there and you read different things, we are not the human animal. We are humans. We are a creature. God did create us. I suppose in some senses you could say that we are animals, but the reality is we are distinct and infinitely different than the animals. I love my pet. We've got some cute little dogs running around our house. I, I thought about putting pictures up there, but I, I save that for my grandbabies. We, we like our pets because they're cute, they're fun, they're playful, they're enjoyable. We appreciate them a lot. They, are, they, they provide a little companionship and, and lots of things, but they are not the same and they are not of the same worth, of the same value and dignity as people. And it's so because God has designed it so and declared it so and created it so. Like a statue bears the resemblance of the one after whom it is modeled, so you and I bear the resemblance of our Creator because He has, it says here, created us in His image. He has imprinted upon us and stamped upon us His own image. Which raises the question, what is that? It is not a physical resemblance. When it says that, it doesn't mean that we're, we're created in God's image so we can figure that God looks like a person and He's, you know, you know, maybe somewhere between there and there in height and He, and he has you know, arms and legs. No, that's not what it means. Now, Jesus does have a body. And He has a body to this day and He will have it forevermore because He became one of us. He took upon flesh and He has kept that flesh and will keep it through all eternity. God the Son. But the Bible tells us, John chapter 4, verse 24, God is Spirit. He does not have a body. When we were created in the image of God, it's not that we were created in God's image physically, it's that God stamped upon the immaterial part of man, upon the inner man, the part that is really us, He has put His imprint there as God put into man a, an eternal soul. Theologians have for several thousand years tried to wrestle with what is the image of God here. There are many thoughts about it, much speculation, many things we could talk about and never really exhaust it. But this morning in the remaining minutes we have, I want to just focus on four ideas from this text which will help us hopefully to grasp a, a, at least a little of what the image of God is and hopefully more than just get a little knowledge that it will change how we view ourselves and practically how we live. Four things, four aspects of the image of God that I see here in this text. The first is that when God imprinted His image upon us, He created us, He designed us to reflect His goodness. 
to reflect His moral character, His holiness. God is perfectly moral and good, holy, righteous. God is, the Bible says, He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Speaking of His moral character, God likewise created us good. It is not insignificant that all along through the creation account, God creates things and He says at, at the end of the day, He would say, and it is God saw all that He had made and it was good. It was good. It was good. Here on the sixth day, uh, the second creative event of the sixth day, when everything is done, when man has been created, God looks and He says, did you notice the difference? And God said it is very good. Literally in the Hebrew, it is exceedingly good, supremely good. In other words, it is flawless perfection. God created us good, perfectly good. We were created as reflections of His holiness and goodness. We were to be moral creatures who reflected God's perfect moral uprightness. But two chapters from now, and we'll get there in a few weeks, Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the picture as man, as Adam and Eve sinned. And sin from that point on has stained us. It has corrupted us. Mankind is now flawed. We are fallen. And the image of God along with that, that God's image upon us has been Corrupted, it has been flawed, it has been marred. But even while it has been marred and damaged, there is still the imprint of God upon us. Romans chapters 1 and 2 makes it clear that man still has a residual of this. Man has a conscience, a built-in instinct that knows that there is wrong and there is right. And a conscience that convicts man that, I shouldn't be doing this. We all have one, right? Not only do we have a conscience, we also have a desire for right. We have a desire for justice. No matter how corrupt we are, we get ticked when somebody treats us corruptly. And we want justice. See, man has, has a moral nature, has a, has a compass that it may be flawed and it might not be fully accurate, but every person has built within them a knowledge that there is right and there is wrong. There is good, there is evil. Where does that come from? Evolution, naturalism cannot explain, first of all, just man's consciousness. How do we even know we're here? Animals who don't have the consciousness of humans, they react to their environment, they react to stimuli, but they don't have a personal consciousness that thinks beyond themselves and beyond what they can see and touch and feel. They, don't have, they can't think in the abstract. Where did that come from? Well, it's part of the image of God. But even beyond that, how, could, how does man develop an innate moral sense of right and wrong? from naturalism and evolution. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. It was put there by our Creator. And it was put there for the purpose because when God created us, we were to be reflections of His goodness. 
We would be the image of His goodness. Sin corrupted it, but God's desire still for you and for me is that we will be growing in likeness of His goodness. All the way through Scripture, the call to those who believe God, to those who claim to be followers, is to, as the Scripture says, be holy. Leviticus says, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If you believe me, if you follow me, then live holy. Reflect my image, because this is who I am. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, not only is that our aim and what God desires for us, but what we discover is, as Paul tells the Corinthians, is that God's Spirit, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit comes to live within us and His Spirit is busy working in us as He says this, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. What God's Spirit is is working to do in every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ is day by day, little by little, move us into ever-increasing glory to reflect God's goodness. To help us to live up to the image which God originally created us with, which was marred by sin. Now that's what He is doing in us now, but the reality is none of us will get there until... We get to heaven. But that's the good news. It is also our destiny. Our destiny is that we will be restored to this perfect image that reflects God's glory. Romans 8.29 says, For those who God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of His Son. Jesus is the perfect image as as, uh, Aaron opened our service this morning with Colossians 1. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. He is the perfect reflection of God's goodness. And the Romans 8.29 says we will all be conformed to that, all of us who are believers in Christ. 1 John 3 says it this way. It says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Jesus is the perfect reflection, the perfect image of God's glory, His holiness. You and I are going to be conformed to His image. We likewise will be conformed to and will become what God intended, that perfect image, that perfect reflection of His character and His holiness. Secondly, to notice in this text, not only does God's image mean that we are created to reflect His goodness, But created in His image means that we are created to be fruitful. Notice verse 28, after God creates Adam and Eve, well, we'll learn their names in next chapter 2, but after He creates man, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is the infinitely creative Creator. God is fruitful. He is productive. And I think that's the first implication I get out of this fruitfulness is it's productive. God will learn later in in a couple of weeks that God created us to tend and to beautify and to work the land and the garden. God did not design us to be idle nor lazy. 
It's not God's plan. Never in the Bible does it speak well of those who are consumers rather than producers, those who are simply lazy. There is a time, I suppose, to be just a consumer, and that is when you are ill, when you're sick, when you're infirmed, when you're dying. But God intends for us, it's part of the thing, to be fruitful, to be productive. But it moves on and it says not only be fruitful, but to multiply and fill the earth. And the simple way to state that is to have kids. Part of the image of God upon us as people is the ability to procreate, to give birth to babies. We, we see that God did that in all forms of life. He gave all of life the ability to recreate, to procreate to, after its kind. But there is something unique and different about that with, with humanity as, compo- as compared to all the animal and plant world. And what is that? Because when God created us, He put into man a living soul, an eternal soul. You know what's awesome about this? is that when a man and a woman come together and they produce a child, not only are they partnering with God creating a creature, they are partnering with God creating an eternal soul. That is part of the image of God that God has placed upon us. Part of the glory that He has crowned us with. We as humans have the ability to create an eternal soul. Isn't that marvelous? We are created in God's image to be fruitful. A third thing about God's image that I see here in verse... You see it in verse 26, also in verse 28. I'll just read verse 28. And speaking to man and and woman about the creation, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Man in God's image is created to rule. We are created to rule over creation. God is the sovereign ruler over all, over all that is created. But God in, in His marvel of creating us, in creating us in His image, has created us with the ability to be rulers and He has delegated to us the authority to be rulers. He created humanity to be kings and queens, princes and princesses. We read earlier from Psalm 8 in our Scripture reading where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visited, but you've crowned him with glory and with honor and you gave him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. The psalmist understood. He was simply speaking of what God did here in Genesis 1. Of the part of the blessing that God puts upon man. He says, be rulers. Be rulers. Again, in a couple of weeks we'll get to Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 3, we lose some of this. What happens is that someone usurps the place of mankind, when man is cast into sin and we lose our spot as rulers over all creation because we have lost our our position as the reflector of God's goodness. 
The one who usurps it, we find out. We don't have time to turn there, but you can find it in John chapter 14. You can find it in John chapter 16. You can find it in John chapter 18 where Jesus talks about the one who usurped. And we discover that it is Satan who is the ruler of this world, Jesus says. Here's the good news. While we were created to rule over creation and while we... Here, look what's coming. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them, that's those redeemed by Jesus, to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. We'll get there in the last message. And we kind of take the, from the, from Genesis to Revelation, we get to Revelation, we discover that what happened is, Jesus, there in chapter 4 through 6, as Jesus is there in heaven, the Lamb, who was slain before the foundation of the world and he takes a scroll. And you recall that scroll is one where he opens the seals. And what is the scroll? It's the title deed to earth. That Jesus is taking. Who is worthy to open the scroll? They say, the Lamb is worthy. He takes the scroll. Jesus, God as man, takes the scroll on behalf of man and reclaims the title deed that was taken from us. And then as it says in Revelation 5, that they will reign on the earth. That's us. You get to the end of the book, you get a little farther in Revelation, it says we will reign with Him forever and ever. You see? We were created to reign. And God in His goodness is going to get that back, what was taken from us. May I say that a couple of implications from that. One is this. That's why, the, why we must always treat others well and with respect. Everyone is, has the image of God imprinted upon them. Not only that, they were created to be rulers. They're to be kings. We should not ever denigrate others. They are made in God's image. Yes, they may be sinners. Yes, they may be lost. But that is no reason for you and I to, to demean them. We are to treat others with respect. The Scripture is very clear on that. Even that's why it tells husbands, treat your wives with respect. As co-heirs of the grace of Christ, she's a queen. Treat her like one. Another little implication, a more minor one, but I notice that it says we are to have dominion over the earth. It doesn't say we're to destroy it. We are vice rulers under God over His creation even though that has, some of that has been taken away and usurped by Satan, we still have, have some, a lot of say-so and a lot of, a lot of power here on the earth. We're to treat the earth with care because we are stewards of His creation. We should care for it. Modern-day environmentalism worships creation. We're not to do that. But we are to be good stewards of the earth He has made and that He put under our care. A fourth aspect of God's image that has been placed on us. I find it in verse 27 where it says this, Male and female, He created them. And I just note that as people, we were created to relate. God, who is the personal God, has created us as people who are persons, with, who are personal. We are created to relate. Here in male and female, we are created to relate to one another. He created both male and female in the image of God, and He has created us to relate to one another. We'll see more of that in chapter 2 when we look at men and women in marriage. 
Much more we'll learn there. But not only are we created to relate to one another, we are created most especially to relate to God. In Genesis 3, before man falls into sin, it's worth noting that God would come down and visit and fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was intimacy of relationship, man with God. Sin broke that. The rest of the Scripture, after Genesis chapter 3 until the end of the story in Revelation, is all about God's plan of redemption, of bringing people back into relationship with God. It's all about how we can have relationship with God. How God calls us to be His people. How God wants us to become His children. At the end of the book, it is realized when we fellowship with Him face to face. God desires for you and me to be, as I said, His children. For you and I to have intimate fellowship and relationship with Him. The Scripture tells us that that relationship is a gift to anyone, as John 1 says, to anyone who will believe in Jesus. To all who receive Him, that's Jesus, He gave the right to become children of God. Sin, you see, God created us with, in His image to have personal relationship with Him. Sin broke that. We have moved from being in relationship with God actually to, as the Romans tells us, that we became enemies of God. That we can be intimate with Him, be His children, simply by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. To miss out on that relationship with God is to miss out on the very purpose of your existence. This literally is what we were made for. To have a relationship with God. It's why Blaise Pascal said what he so famously and so well said, that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus. Father, these truths that are here are absolutely stunning. There are no little people, no little worthless people, no insignificant people. You have created every person in Your image. You have stamped upon them the image of God. Sin has marred it. Sin has broken our relationship with You. It has flawed the image But there is such good news. You love us so much. The story doesn't end there. The whole rest of the Scriptures is all about You sending the Son to rescue any who will believe in Him. And now the invitation comes to us. There may be somebody here yet this morning who has never trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Lord, I pray that for maybe the first time it becomes clear how much You love them, what Jesus did, why He came, that they might even in these moments 
just tell you in their heart, yes, God, I believe. I realize I need a Savior. I trust Jesus. And then that there is glory. Every day of this life, You are busy changing us little by little, day by day. Giving us, not only changing us to reflect more the image of Christ, but giving us the opportunity to to share the good news of Jesus with others. To create spiritual children. (laughs) Those who will live forever because of Jesus. So Father, may the reality of these things cause us to marvel at Your love for us and may it change forever the way that we view ourselves and the way that we live. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.